It's just after 6 o'clock, and you are listening to Too Much Information on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and tonight we have a very special live guest in the studio, the documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis. He's directed films like The Power of Nightmares, The Century of the Self, and a few years back, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. Adam Curtis is in town, courtesy of the Park Avenue Armory, which is presenting his new project, a collaboration with Massive Attack. In fact, the production is called Massive Attack vs. Adam Curtis. And Adam is extremely generous with his time because he's come down to the studio to spend a whole hour with us. Adam Curtis, welcome to WFMU. Thank you. It's really great that uh, jet lagged and all, you, you made some time to come down. So the new piece, I read a description that described it as a new kind of imaginative experience that integrates music, film, politics, and breathtaking moments of illusion in a hallucinatory ride through the dreams and hidden realities of our strange, anxious age, which is kind of exhilarating to say, but you've put the show on a few times now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly the experiential nature of this project is? I I mean... it is experiential. I mean, what you just read out, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust it too much. <laughs> What's the word? Glib. Um, it is experiential. I mean, it, we're not quite sure what it is that we've created. It's, I mean, you've got a, you've got a rock band, so it's, but it's not a gig. You've got a filmmaker, but it's not necessarily a film, but it uses film. What it is, I mean, I'm a political filmmaker and a journalist, but I am very interested in finding new and more emotional ways of doing yeah. what I do, because I think we live in a very emotional time. We're encouraged to think about our feelings. I mean, I, I do myself. We, we, we all talk about our feelings. It's, it's an emotional age. Yeah. Um, and so much of the journalism around us at the moment is so boring because it's not emotional. It doesn't huh. touch on that sort of way of thinking and feeling. And I'm just always really intrigued to try and find ways of doing stories about the world and arguments about the world that connect with you not just in a straight rational way but Uh. also in an emotional way because then it sort of feels like part of your life i mean for example music i mean i i i live my life through music as as most people do far more than reading newspapers i talk to my friends emotionally about music so the idea of actually taking music and integrating it with journalism is quite appealing it's yeah. sort of it's an experiment it's trying to push it a bit yeah. so the actual experience is central to the argument i mean i don't want to give too much away but you'll you'll find that it's if you go you you we, we put you in a world of 11 giant screens all around you with a massive attack playing at very high volume and we take you through a story of the last 30 years and you begin to realize that the actual experience you're having is central to the argument, huh. as much as what I'm telling you in words and pictures and text. Well, this desire to connect seems to resonate with something your collaborator, uh, Robert Dinaja. Is that saying it right, Dinaja? No, Delnaya. He'll Del- kill me if I don't tell you. Okay, Delnaya uh, wrote in an interview I just read um, that one of the reasons he came to you in the first place was his frustration with contemporary live shows, lasers, pyrotechnics, and he imagined that working with you, you might be able to create something that actually connects with the audience emotionally. And it, and it seems that in your films, you're always dealing with this, the, the need to visually engage people. So when Robert came to you, did you take this on as a challenge? Or were you like, oh, yeah, I can do this. I, I do this all the time. Well, when a quite famous rock band comes and says, would you work with us? You just sort of <laughs> say yes. Uh, and then you sort of think about it afterwards. I mean, and when I thought about it afterwards, I thought, oh, God, what have I... 
I mean, there is a problem because if you t- if you're a filmmaker and you tell stories, you start at point A and you go through to the end mm-hmm. of the story, and you'll take people on hopefully an emotionally enjoyable journey. If you are in a rock band, you do stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, because that's what gigs are. So you had a problem yeah. putting the two together. But actually, what I began to realize is that you could actually integrate them in such a way that you created something new. And I think that's what we've tried to do. So you, you, it starts very much like a normal film, with I mean, the band play to it, but then it begins to develop in a way that surprises you, because it takes you in paths that you wouldn't expect either at a gig or if you were watching a film and at points we try and pull them together and I think there are two or three points in the show I mean we've developed we change it every night (laughs) I mean to be honest the first night we did it uh, in Manchester was our first proper rehearsal because technically it's so difficult oh wow and that was last summer we're playing 11 screens giant 25 foot high screens (laughs) synchronized through various computers while the music has to be live and the film noise has to be mixed at the same time because bands never play the same each night. Uh, it's, it's odd and we change it all the time but as we've developed it there are three or four moments where, which I've never seen before where you just the audience is quite mesmerized by what we've done. I mean Massive Attack play very loudly and mm. they once you start them when going when you press the start button with Massive Attack they're very powerful and I found a way of actually taking the images that I use and doing different things with them once you ally it with that power it's, yeah. it's they're good they're really good we should mention that this isn't actually your first you know immersive collaborative project in 2009 you produced uh, a show called it felt like a kiss and most of us have seen that including myself on the internet not in in a performative uh, uh, setting and it seemed that that one it was very easy to transfer that from the live space to the screen well yeah, it felt like a kiss was, a, a, it started off with a film that I made about a particular period in history. Just, again, it was, I was trying to make a film about what I would describe as emotional history, what it was like to actually live through that period, as much as what we now know it was mm-hmm. all about, and how those two, the big story and the little story, or the emotional stories fit together. What I then did was work with a group called Punch Drunk, who I think, th- th- they've done a show here yeah. called Sleep No More, I think it's still on. It is. Um where we actually created that world that you saw in the film, that you could go and explore it as well. I see. And, and, quote, make your own story out of it. To be blunt, I began to discover the limits of that experiential thing. I mean, it's, it's very much of our time, that experiential mm-hmm. thing. And Punch Drunk are brilliant. They do it the best because they just make those worlds feel like a world yeah. rather than just a set. But what I discovered is if you let an audience go wherever they want and quote, find their own story, then you can't tell them your story. You're trapped by them wanting to explore their own narrative. Um, What I've tried to do with this thing, this thing with Massive Attack, is actually find a way of immersing people in a quite overwhelming experience which tells them something, yet at the same time tell them a story which takes them somewhere they don't expect. Because I think the limitations of that wander around and explore the world yourself is you never go outside yourself. You never lose yourself in something else. And what I've tried to do with Robert from Massive Attack in this is create a world where it, towards the end it gets very, very intense and you do lose yourself. I mean, it's very, very... It's quite overwhelming yeah. at points. Do you imagine in the future that once you're finished touring with this that this could end up um, online? And, and no, it no, can't work. This is it. It has so to work. People need to see this. One of the arguments behind this show 
is that we haven't quite seen how static the world we are living in is at the moment. Yeah. That how, what's the word? It's in like a steady state. It had n nothing really changes. There's, there's arguments, there's sort of things come and go, but there isn't a vision of another kind of world or an idea we're moving towards something. We're living in a very static world. And part of the argument of the show is that that staticness is reinforced by the constant repetition of images and sounds and music from the past. That if you think about it, we're continually played. I mean, both Robert and I are, the, are culprits. I mean, we're extremely guilty of this ourselves. Robert samples music from the past and reworks it in Massive Attack. I constantly go back into the archives of the BBC, drag out some old footage and rework it. We are small little players in a very big thing that's happening at the moment, which is we are constantly being replayed images from the past. Yeah. And I wanted to argue in this show that that sense of being surrounded by images is in a way holding us back. It's a sort of rather thin wall that's holding, encasing us. I, I call it a sarcophagus in the yeah. show. And that maybe it's time to break through that. Uh, so if you're going to do a show like that, you can't put it on TV. <laughs> you have to go and experience it. Oh, man. And experience I'm the idea that you're actually being trapped in a world of images towards the end. Which yeah. You well, you just gave away that there are 11 screen. I cannot wait to see that this weekend. Our guest today on the program is the documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis. He's telling us hi about his new show, Massive Attack vs. Adam Curtis. And performances start this weekend at the Park Avenue Armory. We're going to have a pair of tickets to give away to the show at the end of the hour. The number for that is 201-209-9368. But be warned, we're going to have a question that you're going to have to answer. So pay attention. We're also going to open up the phones um, later on in the hour. Adam, I've actually linked to a trailer uh, for the, the performance on the WFMU TMI page, and I love the trailer because it promises us a story featuring Donald and Ivana Trump, Ted Turner, Jane Fonda, Hamid Karzai, his brothers, the Neutron Bomb, Siberian Punk Movement, and Bambi. And, and you know, this is in the trailer, and without giving too much away, can you uh, tell us what the connective, uh, what, what, what's the grand narrative bringing all these things together? I don't want to give too much away, but I'm, a hint. I'm telling you a story of how we got to this world that we live in today. I mean, th and, and I'm a journalist, and I like finding stories that in their own small way, what's the word, express a bigger, the bigger story yeah. around them. And I'm trying to, what this show is all about, is how we've gone from a very progressive sort of world where we believe in a future to a very sort of static world and you have an it's like a novel you have I mean it's real all these characters are real they are I tell stories about them yeah. I, mean, I, I really don't want to give too much no, about, no, about, no. about how they they figure but there's I mean th not uh, there are other people in it uh, one of the I mean th the story that you will experience in the show shifts from America to Russia to Afghanistan and to Britain it's a sort of you know it's a yeah. story of the last 30 years it's like a big epic and in that these characters come and go Donald Trump appears early on and then reappears in another strange and odd and surprising way in this, uh, involving a man who helped him out of a crisis in his gambling empire at a certain point, uh -huh. using mathematics. <laughs> uh, you have uh, a rather tragic pop artist from Britain who loved America and died tragically, and then her family, what happened to the rest of her family. But you also have um, leading members of the Siberian punk movement, uh, from the 1980s. Uh, we play some of their music in the show. Uh, that's um, great. You know, if you're going to tell a story about the last few years, 
you should tell it through some really good characters. It's as simple as that. And these are great stories. Sure. And I, I love someone imagining someone unfamiliar with your work viewing this trailer, thinking like how the hell and why the hell does he have so many disparate characters but this is what you do this you know weaving together interesting characters and interesting stories is something you've been doing for quite a long time now you've turned it into an art form and you already mentioned how you're working with a lot of uh, material from the BBC archive but I'd like to just back up and and if you could talk a bit about where it begins for you doing this with you know this well, th no you say I mean you read out those characters and you you I find the truth is, and I, I find a lot of journalists. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm a political journalist. I make films, but I find a lot of journalism very, very, very boring, because what it does is it sort of, it either tells me stories I already know, or I mean, you must know that experience of what turning on a television program, mm -hmm. and you know from within about three minutes how what the program's going to be, how it's going to play out, and how it's going to end, and the conclusions they're going to come to as they do what they call the wind-up at the end. I hate wind-ups in films because you, you you know it by then or you don't. Um, th it's really dull. What I constantly search for is stories that surprise me, take mm -hmm. me somewhere. Like for example, you mentioned a series I made called The Century of the Self. The Century of the Self was a great big four-hour series about the relationship between psychological ideas about human beings and their minds and marketing and politics in the 20th century. It's a good big general theme. Normally, if people did that, they would go and they would have someone on screen walking around doing lots of hand gestures to camera and coming out with rather sort of dull generalizations that you sort of know. I discovered very early on a little story, which was that... Sigmund Freud's nephew in the 1920s came to America, no, he was in America already, became the man who invented public relations. Not only that, he actually claimed to be using his uncle's ideas about the unconscious mind in the invention of public relations. Well, I just thought, I don't know that story. It's yeah. a wonderful story. He turned out to be a great character. It's a very good way to start this whole story. And I followed through the Freud dynasty from that man back in the 1920s and his uncle Sigmund up to the present day and how those theories weaved in and out of selling us all sorts of things, marketing of politics, all those ideas about what human beings are really like psychologically. And it, was, it surprised me, and I always think I'm quite normal, and if it surprised me and interested me, I always think huh. other people would be surprised by it. So that's what I look for, stories. Yeah, and, and I read one account where you said that there was a film you were working on in 1989 about the Iranian Revolution, and you combined that with the French Revolution, you know, for putting those two together. But I also read an account where you talked about just at the very, very early days, just almost as an exercise, combining a fashion designer and a weapons designer Did going together. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, and, and you, you described that one as more of a lark, as, as, a, as a less serious one, perhaps maybe compared to the, the Iranian-French one. But it seems that, you know, again, they're all, you know, high culture, low culture coming together, but they're all very necessary. No, there's no, it's not, is it ever really a lark? Well, it's a lark in the sense that I'm a creature of my time. And, and if you grew up in the 1980s and the 1990s, you are as fascinated by low culture or trash culture or whatever you want to call it, as you are by people writing very long and quite dull op-ed pieces in the New York Times, which of course I read and I think are very interesting. But they tend to, when they, but when they start talking about collateralized debt obligation 
or other economic theories, I tend to drift away. I mean, I'm just human like that. Yeah. I, and I think I get it. And then I, it drifts away like it's a strange drug experience in your mind. And I always try and look for ways of taking trash culture and like bolting it together with powerful arguments about politics, about power, uh, about economics, which are serious, which mm -hmm. are important, but, but making you sort of turn around and look at those in a different way. I mean, this is my problem with journalism, is it's become so rigid these days, so formatted, so formalized, is that y you don't even really read it any longer. It's a bit like looking at the Mona Lisa. Mm. The Mona Lisa is so familiar to us that we don't actually look at it as a painting any longer. So if I have another article about how bankers are bad and they've led us into an economic crisis, I think, oh, I know that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. There's a sort of, there's a rigidity to so much of our journalism at the moment. Not, not only on the right, but on the left as well. I mean, I have a real problem with investigative journalism at the moment. I know this is almost a heretical thing to say, and all liberals will fall down. But honestly, if I see another article that tells me that bankers are bad, or that spies are spying on me, and then doesn't tell me what one should do about it, and just says, oh, it's all terrible, I will scream. I mean, it's, it's, it's repetitious. What I think is waiting to be done is a new kind of journalism, which in a way like investigative journalism peaked and was invented and was mm -hmm. noble and wonderful in the 1970s and 80s. There's a new kind of journalism which is waiting to be invented, which not only tells us the terrible things that are happening, but actually offers us an idea of what one could do to change the world to actually do something about it. At the moment, what you do is you have a form of journalism that comes along, you can see it, you can see exactly what they're going to say, and then everyone goes, oh dear, it's terrible. And the world goes on as it is. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you can even uh, uh, you know, use the word journal. It seems that there's so many people today that are just looking at the institution of journalism and, and not even like criticize. It just failed. They look at it as a total abject failure. Like completely. You know, you mentioned the financial crisis. You know, here in New York last week, we were marking the five-year anniversary of the fall of Lehman Brothers Bank that, that kind of kicked it all off. And it still seems that, you know, again, thinking back to that moment that you had this brief moment where it was clear that the journalists had failed. Like no one had, the experts had failed to not only you know, predict that this was coming and this gigantic crash was just right there around the corner, completely missed it. But even afterwards, that they, they still, five years later, there still doesn't seem to be a coherent emotional narrative that we can even come together to talk about what happened. And you, you, I forgot to mention one of the characters in the trailer is the, what is it? The, is it everyone at Goldman Sachs who made a killing in 2008? So it seems that the financial crisis is, is playing a role in your new oh piece. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the arguments in this show, the central argument, is, that, is to try and pull into focus what kind of society we're living in. And the argument is, is that it's an incredibly static one. It's almost like we've time stopped. And hmm. it's, that's exactly right. You had a financial crisis in 2008. And everyone, and, and, and all good liberal journalists told me that it's because bankers were bad. But what's happened? Nothing. I mean, yeah. it's partly the fault of the left. I mean, the left or the liberal or the progressive liberals have absolutely and utterly failed to come up yeah. with anything. I mean, I'm astonished by the Occupy movement, quite frankly. I mean, I you've written about this. I can only really speak for the ones I met in, in London. But they captured the public's imagination with a very good slogan of 99% and 1% and then completely blew it. Totally. I mean, it's, it's sort of like 
it would be a sackable offence if they were in a, a, a corporation or or or, or, a, or in the BBC. Yeah. I mean, it's out, absolutely outrageous that they then blew it and left us five years later with no vision of an alternative. Nothing. I'm not saying that the writer yeah. any better. They they want to manage the system in another way. The, 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 what I'm saying, what the show is about, is about how we have. We have no vision of the future, which is other than what we've got. And we continually play the past to yeah, ourselves, yeah. continually, again and again. Not just in politics, but in music, in films. Constantly, we replay the past. We never have a vision of the future. And I think, to be honest, a lot of... I mean, this is going back to what I was talking about, cultural journalism, is that culture, our modern idea of culture, in which people think they're being very radical, mm-hmm. may be actually very conservative constantly hmm. reworking the past this is what the show is also about yeah you know but I, I, as much as you know I, maybe we'll come back to the your, your problems with Occupy I mean you wrote some great things about this talking about managerial aspects and the network you know that some yeah. some, some things that y- you were wa- you, you were diving into but I, I want to come back to like what is problematic now looking back five years ago to the crisis is that it doesn't seem to be that it's not that there wasn't like a solution to it, but there still doesn't even seem to be a coherent narrative about what happened. If there's anything that's shared, it's just this profound sense of disillusionment. There are two po- there are two reasons for this. One is what I've just been talking about, which is that the left or the progressive liberals have totally failed to come up with what you said called an alternative narrative. The other thing, which no one really addresses, is that. What happened between the 1980s and 2008 was that the theories of economics colonized everything. They colonized social interaction. They colonized the way we were supposed to relate to each other. Everything became Mm -hmm. a market-driven idea. Now, the point about economics is that it's actually very boring. It's incredibly boring, economics. I mean, if you try and make a film about economics, for example, it's almost impossible because there's nothing to put on the screen. It's a bit like modern management. If you try and make a film about modern management, there's nothing to put on the screen. It's men and women in quite dull clothes, sitting in glass-walled offices, pressing keystrokes mm. and talking to each other, possibly with a flip chart, but no longer. The flip charts have even gone now. There's nothing there. Economics, there's nothing there. It's just theories which are almost impossible to keep in your mind. I mean, really, really difficult. I have a theory, a name for it, is that there are large chunks of the modern world which are unstoryfiable. You can't <laughs> turn them into stories. And if you can't turn the world into stories, then you can't grab people's imaginations and explain what's really going on. So I'm not really blaming the journalists that, or the politicians. It's that somehow there is a wall that prevents us t- dragging what's happening into the public domain and talking about it in terms that transcend those who are operating the systems. Do you see what I mean? If you turn on a worthy television program about economics on, in Britain, I don't know about America, but in Britain, all the pundits who are on the television program talk in the discourse of the economists. So they've been captured. Yeah. And by doing that, they're boring. And I drift away and I fall asleep. That's the problem. And no one can really pull it and turn it into something else. And we're waiting for someone to do that. You have done that. And you, you have economic theories. And, econ- you know, if I'm thinking back to the all watched over by machines of loving grace, I mean, the Alan Greenspan in the, fi- the financial crisis, with the Asian financial crisis, is beautifully done in the first uh, episode of that film. So, I mean, it, it, 
you've done it. I mean, you, when you say it, it, economics is hard to put on the screen, you have kind of done it a lot. Sort of. I mean, it's nice of you to say that. I didn't think, I mean, I could have done it better, but it was difficult that because you are, do, I mean, I took the Asian economic crisis because that's a good story and it's a fascinating story. And the angle I chose was about how the Chinese and, and other Asian countries reacted to that. Yeah. But I still maintain that there are large chunks of how power works in the modern world that are not open to us. But can I just go back to one other thing you yeah. said, which is quite interesting. The, the failure of the journalists, not, to, not only to explain 2008 to us, but to anticipate it. It's very similar to the way the intelligence agencies yes. failed to predict the fall of the Berlin Wall. Totally. One of the most astonishing things in the history of the recent past is the way every institution that was supposed to anticipate these things failed to see the fall of the Berlin Wall. In fact, in my country, the intelligence agencies, because I know a little bit about this, <laughs> even after the fall of the Berlin Wall, were convinced that it was all a sham <laughs> and that the Soviets were uh, letting it happen yeah. in order to actually d uh, l let us drop our guard and then they take over the world. And it wasn't until 1992 they actually admitted that it was true. The intelligence agencies failed then. I think a similar thing happened to journalism, or no, financial journalism in 2008, and they should be absolutely ashamed of themselves, but they're still there, still telling us that it's right to do what we call quantitative easing, or it's right to, to have austerity. Why should we believe these people when none of them predicted yeah. the economic crisis? Yeah. It's astonishing. But I still feel, at least in our country, that we don't even have a coherent narrative about what happened. If there's anything shared, it's this sense of disillusionment that I, I came back to. It's, and, and that's where I feel you know, is, is an, an important theme for you. And that's why I'm so excited that you're having the financial crisis in this, this new work. The, this, the, show, what the, the fundamental argument about this show is that if you live in a world where you are constantly replaying the past to yourself, whether it be politically or culturally through films or through sampling of old music and reworking it, then you can never imagine a world that has never existed before. What you are constantly having to imagine is worlds of the past. And we've got trapped in this sound echo chamber where we constantly replay the past to ourselves and are thus trapped. And that's the world we've tried to create in the show, where it, which is why it becomes uh. quite oppressive to, towards well, the end. You're right. What we're waiting for is someone to come up with an idea of a future, which, of course, will borrow from the past, but has within its structure and its dimensions and its imaginative pull on your emotions of an idea that this might not have ever existed before. Yeah, yeah. which will excite human beings and will pull them together and will give them what you... I mean, I'm always a bit dubious about saying na the word narrative. Just another story. <laughs> well, I love that you reference your own and Massive Attack's complicity here in this sort of reworking yeah. the past. But just want to quickly note that our guest today is the documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis. And uh, we're talking about a new production. He has a collaboration with Massive Attack that's coming up at the Park Avenue Armory. But let's talk about you and the past because one of you know your signatures is using... Uh, archive material from the BBC. In fact, it, you know, I've, it seems sometimes that you're you if the BBC collapsed, like you would, <laughs> you would be out of work. Uh, well, I mean, I I sit on top of the largest film archive in the world, which is a great and extraordinary privilege. I mean, it's sixty years of film, radio. Uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary, wonderful, rich thing. But you're right. I am part of the problem, <laughs> as is Robert from Massive yeah. Attack. I mean, but we are, part, we are children of our time. 
and our time can't move forward. It has to go back and dig up the past. Yeah. But, but again, though, that being trapped, though, is where I would take issue because when you, you know, when I was thinking about the, the financial crisis and the experts, you know, that I, I should say that if you're familiar with um, Adam's films, that uh, missing of the intelligence of the end of the Cold War is something that comes up in a few, a few times in your work, especially the power of, of nightmares. But, you know, again, like, can we learn from going back to that to, to understand more what's going on now? Of course you have to go back into the past to learn about the future. And if I was being nice to myself, I would say that I have tried <laughs> to actually learn from the past. And the films I have made, like The Power of Nightmares, I went back and did told you the history of radical Islamism, which I think makes you look again huh. at what has happened over the past few years in the Middle East and here and in Britain in a different way. That's good. That's right. And that's correct. But there is a terrible, there's another thing going on at the moment, which is a sort of almost an archaeology of the past, mm. which is that you literally rework it. I mean, in music, I find this astonishing. There are bands now in Britain, I won't name them, who literally are almost like recreating post-punk gigs of 1981, almost note for note. Yeah. I go to them, and they do it extremely well, and it's quite cute. But it's actually quite depressing because it, they're almost like archaeologists from the 1920s digging up Tutankhamun's tomb. It's just they don't wear pith helmets. They just have post-punk haircuts. Yeah, Very yeah. well done haircuts. But actually, that's not learning from the past. That's recreating the past almost as a sort of, I don't know, it's not a style thing. It's just a sort of... It's just, well, what else is there to do? Yeah, yeah. Which I find very depressing. I don't want to name band names either, but it, we've had some jokes around here, the station, of sort of naming certain bands or which one is the Joy Division band, which one <laughs> is the, you know, it's sort of like that that's very conscious, so much that it's immediately recognizable. And yeah. It's and it is archaeology. It's yeah. not, I mean, you're right. You do, of course you have to learn from the past. And we can't invent another world out of nothing. But it, the, 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 the fragments have to come from the past but you reconstruct them in a way that captures your imagination. So I think there are two problems. One, we are stuck with the past. And secondly, we're stuck with a system of power which is very difficult to describe in ways that capture people's imagination at the moment. Not only economics, but managerialism. It's just incredibly difficult, but you, I'm sure everyone listening knows very well that their livelihoods are often decided by these managers who have a language which is almost impossible to m turn, m t yeah. to imaginatively pull out and deconstruct. Yeah, you know, I was, I was trying to make a joke out of my question about the BBC archive, but I was curious, like, when you do a side project like this collaboration, are th do they allow you to this use is a the BBC, archive? This is a BBC co-production with the, uh, ah. the Manchester Festival. Because actually, the, the great, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the BBC. It's a large... We read about those lately. It's a large, complex, and out-of-control organization, and some of the people who run it might not be the most admirable of people at the moment. But it has, like all chaotic organizations, an ability to reinvent itself. It just does, and it's good. And it, providing I don't spend too much money, it encourages me to go and experiment which is yeah. really good. It's, am it's, am it it's amazing. We don't have anything like the BBC in America. And when my friends who do work in BBC radio complain about you know, the problems, I just want to scream because it's as problematic as, as it is. It's such an amazing institution and does so many amazing things. And somehow you have this freedom. And, and there's, there doesn't seem to be a single BBC producer like you. You're it. That you, have, you seem to have this freedom to do anything. 
I'm called the fig leaf. <laughs> when, when, to, I need to be truthful. When, when, when the right-wing press accused the BBC of dumbing down, they, yeah. point, they point at me and say, look, we've got him doing that. And everyone goes, oh, that's all right. So that's the fig leaf. I mean, that's, but, but in return for being the fig leaf, I'm allowed to do experiments like yeah. this, providing I don't cost too much. I, I mean, see. I wouldn't be allowed to do this if I did a million pound dramas. Yeah. I go and, you know, I take archive that's already in the BBC. I mean, I have some from outside, but mostly from the BBC, which doesn't cost anything. I edit it myself. I shoot the stuff. I narrate it myself. So it's cheap. Yeah. I'm a cheap fig leaf, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But I, I know that uh, there there must be, on the other side of it, other producers who are just at the mercy of managerials and micromanagement in the structure that are looking at you wanting to, to kill you. <laughs> in, in other words, there aren't, you know, that if, if you are the fig leaf, it doesn't seem that, you know, you haven't shown that, even though, uh, for example, your blog on the site we've talked about is the most popular one that they have, even more so than Doctor Who. It doesn't seem that, you know, they're interested in creating more fig leafs or, or, or opening up other individuals to to have more freedom well i mean i i have i basically what am i what am i i'm an essay writer who uses yeah. television uh, i'm not interested in doing drama and all the other things that a lot of people in television are i come from a more political background i don't know i mean it's a question i can't already answer I know, all i, I would say is that the thing i learned about the bbc is that it's a chaotic and out of control organization and i swim between the cracks yeah well you, you said you just called yourself an essay writer and i think you know i i've been trying to mention that you our guest today is adam curtis a few times but if anyone familiar with your work will recognize your very distinct voice you talked about edward bernays and freud earlier i just wanted to play a clip from uh, uh, from that film. This is from the final uh, episode. It's just about uh, 45 seconds because I, I want to ask you about the role your, your voice plays and, and the way you write. So let's, let's play a minute here. In 1939, Edward Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, created a vision of a future world in which the consumer was king. It was at the World's Fair in New York and Bernays called it Democracy. It was one of the earliest and most dramatic portrayals of a consumerist democracy, a society in which the needs and desires of individuals were read and fulfilled by business and the free market. But in reality, the World's Fair had been an elaborate piece of propaganda designed by Bernays for his clients, the giant American corporations. Privately, Bernays did not believe that true democracy could ever work. He had been profoundly influenced in this by his uncle's theories of human nature. Freud believed that individuals were not driven by rational thought, but by primitive unconscious desires and feelings. And Bernays believed that this meant it was too dangerous to let the masses ever have control over their own lives. And consumerism was a way of giving people the illusion of control while allowing a responsible elite to continue managing society. Ah, that's from Century of the Self, which a clip you kind of just set up a few minutes ago. But I wanted to ask you about how you write your scripts. Do you write to the clips, or do you start with a script? And when, you, when do you decide to use your voice or, and or text, which you also use a lot on, on the screen? Well, I only use text, really, in the shows, not in... Not in I use a bit in the television films. Um... I think I'm unusual compared to quite a lot of television journalists is that I often cut whole sections with music 
before I write them. Yeah. Because it's fun. And th the problem with playing that, this is not a criticism of radio, it's just you can't see the pictures. Sure. What I tend to do is I have quite a, what, what's the word, not a quiet voice, I have a calm voice. And, and I also write in a very simple, plain way, because I'm not a very good writer. What I'm actually much better at is cutting clips in a rather wild and baroque way. And it's just, it's just a counterpoint. I yeah. mean, it, it's, it's a way of, I cut emotionally with music and pictures. Yeah, you, you mentioned that there are... I'm counterpointing it with my voice. That your voice is not in the show, so we won't hear your sh your voice. No, you do. I've used my uh, uh, voice in the show. Oh, good. Because yeah. in it felt like a kiss. You're not in there, and no, I don't. and I, you know I make a point if I have a friend who I'm going to uh, make them watch some of your your work. I make sure they don't watch that one first because your voice isn't in that. No, one. I used. I mean, when you've got a uh, large and powerful rock band like Massive Attack playing at full volume, you can't use your voice at those points, but at points, no, at quite a lot of points in this, oh, I great. use my voice because I want to tell you a story in this, which was different from the It Felt Like I Kiss see, experience. I see, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, man, the hour is flying by. We've only got about 15 minutes left. We still have so much to do, phone calls to take. We're going to take some calls in a few minutes. But let's come back to music. You just said that you like to cut to music because music is fun. Music is so central, you know, with the, the archival image to your storytelling practice. Um, let's start talking about music by just talking about Massive Attack. What was it like collaborating music? Did you get to do music collaboration with them? Yeah, well, um, what happened with this is that actually it, it's there are very few, I have to say this, some Massive Attack fans might be disappointed by this show. There are very few Massive Attack songs in the show. There are all sorts of songs from all over the place uh, in this show, uh, done and reinterpreted and I mean, we, there are, it ranges from Barbara Streisand to Nine Inch Nails uh, to Siberian punk music from the 1980s, uh, two rather, one rather good and another rather beautiful song that's sung by Liz Fraser. Uh, Robert and I sat down and, just like two boys in a bedroom comparing records, just brought out our own inner DJs and decided on a, a set list for it hmm. and then worked from that. No, uh, I mean, I use music. I mean, this is, the, this is another thing... I have a problem with television journalism. I mean, it doesn't matter about printed journalism. Is have you noticed? Yeah. I mean, I can't really speak enough for America. America have, is like have down here on the floor. How rubbish the music is in most television yeah. films, both factual and fiction. It's just rubbish. It's yeah. as if it's as if the people making it don't really like music. And what they do <laughs> is they reach they reach for a little bit of ambient noise for this a little bit of doomy drone for that and they don't actually really like music and, they d and it's just astonishing it's as if they live in another world whereas actually everyone lives their life through music yeah. well I mean most people do I do I love music and I love the emotion that music carries and I, it's a way of communicating the feeling I have about what I'm trying to say like I was doing there in that clip that you played and it's just astonishing. I think the pr real problem are the film editors. The film editors sit in darkened rooms, they don't get out enough, and they don't listen to enough music. And yet they have control over the music in television documentaries. And it's just wrong and it should be <laughs> Well, I love that you said you're starting off with that kind of because it's fun. But there does seem something, uh, there does, there's something about the way you use your music that allows the ideas to resonate through and, and connects them from arguments you make in one film to arguments that come in another film but it also seems that the the music yeah the music d d connects i guess emotionally with with the ideas and yeah. where 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 
Where do you find most of the music? Where, where is where are you I just listen listening to, to music all the time? You're listening to. But this is what I, we. Li- I mean, for better or for worse, we live at an emotional time. I mean, you know, I've, that's what the Freud series was all about: yeah. the rise of an emotional therapy-based culture. If you go to any bar at night, every, you listen to people; they're talking about their feelings. And music is a way of expressing feelings. Yet if you actually watch television journalism, it doesn't do that. It doesn't connect with you emotionally. It seems to me that you can actually fuse and integrate quite strong, high and quite difficult arguments with emotion using music and images. That's all I try and do. Mm. And being truthful about what music you like, being honest and open about it. You can always tell when the, the people putting music on films are faking it. Yeah, you can. Y- y- you use a lot of Brian Eno uh, in in your films. Uh, is, have you always felt like okay, I've used too much of this. I have to I have to move to something. I else? haven't used Brian Eno for quite a long time. What am I obsessed about at the moment? Nine Inch Nails are like. I think Trent Reznor has got this incredible ability, which I've, it's very modern, which is an ability to take some like almost industrial noise yeah. but make it very romantic and very soppy. I don't know how he does it, yeah. but that's re- I mean, he doesn't do it all the time. That's really good. Um, I use people like that. I use everyone. I mean, I just take from everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say, like, oh, it's difficult to play this clip on the radio because the clips are missing. One of the things I was going to say is how there's something very radio-like about your work. I mean, I think taking the images out, the way you're emotionally talking to us, the way you're writing, it's very, it, it, it reminds me of some of my favorite things about how radio can work with the human voice. Yeah, but voice. what I can do with the images is make jokes, speed it up. I can be... Of course, I no, don't no. Use pretentious, but I can I'm be not trying to make you go into radio. It's <laughs> 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 we have about ten minutes left. Our guest today is Adam Curtis. Um, we're going to take some telephone calls now. If you'd like to call in at two zero one two zero nine nine three six eight, the Park Avenue Armory has given us a pair of tickets to give away to the performance. There's only about, I guess, it's three weekends. Three, three weekends or no, yeah. six shows. Six, six shows. Yeah. So you blink and you will miss this one. And as if you've been listening throughout the hour. Uh, this one isn't going to make it to uh, to the screen. This is uh, something you have to experience. So um, if you want to give us a call at uh, 201-209-9368, we will open up those now. But uh, as we're waiting, I want to just come back to this thing about disillusionment that one of the things I wanted to go there, one of the reasons I wanted to go there is you're often described as a documentary journalist who makes films about power. But I think if we ran your scripts through a computer, the word disillusionment might turn out just as much as the word power. So, and I wanted to, if you could talk about that a bit more, that concept, that theme is, is very important. Sometimes I'm not sure if it's just the backdrop of your world or if there's something very particular that you want to tell us or warn us about disillusionment today. I think it's just that I grew up at a time when all sorts of progressive dreams failed. I mean, it's as simple as that. And my people of my generation have been struggling to deal with that and not just turn into what I call conservative odierists who just say, oh dear, yeah. about everything. Uh, I think that's, that. I mean, to be honest, the, the f- as a journalist, that's all I've been trying to do. I've been trying to look back into the past and work out why we have got to this very static point very conservative age. I mean, we live in a very rigid conservative age. Where did that, and, and also, much of that conservatism comes from liberal disillusionment, as much as it does from the right. It really does. I mean, I've, I've, I think one of the most uncharted histories of our time is the way 
liberals who once believed in a progressive dream through the 80s and 90s became dark and pessimistic. I mean, when I made The Power of Nightmares, I, I argued about how fear had taken over a lot of politics. I thought at that point it was just coming from the sort of apocalyptic fear of that terrorism. I think it's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. There is a really, really deep, disillusioned pessimism at the heart of the liberal imagination at the moment, which is one of the reasons why they are not actually looking towards creating alternative futures in the face of the, I don't know, the failures of the economic yeah. system since 2008. I mean, th th it's, it's very dark. I mean, they worry about the food and the, 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 it's, it's a sort of, it's as if the world's closing in on them. Someone once said to me that actually, really what you're seeing at the moment is the baby boomer generation facing their own death. And that this is the real problem of our age, is that the baby boomer generation were very powerful and are still very powerful. They hold the reins to a lot of, what's the word, outlets in the media and elsewhere and in art and culture, and they're facing their own death. And if you're a baby boomer, what you've been brought up to believe is that you are the centre of the mm -hmm. universe. It's all about you. You yeah. are everything. Individualism. It was once a radical idea, but once you begin to face your own death, if you if you believe in individualism, the one thing you can't believe conceive of is your own death. It's someone said they can't conceive that they're going to die, so they think everything else is going to die. Oh, and, man. The, and really, what's happening at the moment is that they're projecting their own fear of mortality onto the world around them. I mean, one of the things I have really against, and I'm not talking about America, I'm talking more about Britain here. The environmental movement has been co-opted by a dark pessimism. So, for example, when you have global warming, which is a wonderful opportunity to try and transform the world. Here you have a big crisis. Well, why not try and transform, use it as an engine to try and transform the world into something fairer, better and cleaner? Instead, the environmental movement in Britain has been co-opted by dark, uh, almost apocalyptic pessimism, which just simply mm. says, we must keep the world as it is, nothing must change, which seems to me one of the most reactionary, conservative, and useless arguments you could offer. Yeah. And I find, and I think behind that, there is this really dark fear of their own death within that generation. No one's yet charted it, probably because it's too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there, you know, you have so many characters in your films that are having these moments of disillusionment or used to believe into, uh, you know, there's a classic line, but they were wrong. Is <laughs> something I think turns up in a lot of your films. They believe, this was a belief, this was a fantasy, and then they were wrong. And when it comes to this disillusionment or losing illusions, is there any personal experiences for you that feed into this? I know you were in academia and you left that, but uh, you seem kind of more excited to leave that than than depressed. Uh, no, I'm not a pessimist. I mean, I, I'm charting the rise of pessimism. I mean, I, if, if, there's, <laughs> if, there's anything, if there's anything personal in this, is I grew up at the age of the failure of the progressive dreams, but I'm progressive. Oh, by the way, there is a very, very, very funny parody of me yeah. on, oh, yeah, I've uh, seen, oh, on yeah. the internet where the voice, they get the voice absolutely right. It's absolutely brilliant. But, you know, I think that that's a sign that you have, have a true style. If, 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 no, if there were no parodies, then, then you'd be in trouble. It made me chuckle. It yeah. really, it's really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyone who's listened, they should like, go and look uh, at it. Abs really absolutely. Well, I think I, when I was in London visiting a friend of mine, uh, show, you can find it on YouTube. But, I, but again, I think that there are certain, you know, like I said, that line comes up along, but they were wrong. But, they were, but that, again, that is such a theme for so many of the characters that are coming. But if you look at the age that we've lived through, you've lived th through a time. I mean, it's, 
the 19th, sorry, the 20th, to be epic, the 20th century was an age of grand revolutions. Okay. Um, not just in the Soviet Union and throughout the rest of the world, but, you know, there was a great deal of optimism post the Second World War in America, in Britain. I mean, one of the things I mentioned in this show was just the extraordinary idea behind some of Lyndon Johnson's great society programs in the 1960s. Extraordinary. They wanted to remake the whole yeah. centers of cities in planned ways. We forget how revolutionary those ideas were and how quickly they fell apart in the 1970s. And since then, we've, what we've substituted for that is this very static, pessimistic worldview, which I think always happens after big revolutions. I mean, the same thing happened in France after the French Revolution in the 19th century. And I, as a progressive, want to find a way of busting out of that. And what I get really fed up with is the liberals who, <laughs> thinking that they are being radical, have retreated into a dark, pessimistic... Yes. To be honest, I think a lot of the liberals at the moment are the conservatives of our age. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's, it's interesting because your, your film... Um, so the power of nightmares ended up coming to America and screening, he, especially here in New York. It actually yeah. screened on on movie screen. Not sure if it was in Iowa, but it definitely was 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 here in New York. And it seemed that you know a lot of folks sort of pegged you, at least here, in New York Times, as a liberal. And you you got kind of a chuckle out of that, like that you you, you were surprised that that you know all of a sudden you were making this liberal argument. And uh, uh, you seemed uh, surprised as to where people would be getting this from, from your film. Why was that? I think I am... One of the things I believe in is being completely honest to your own responses to your time. And I think I am very much a creature of my time, is that I change my mind politically, depending on what subject I'm dealing with. So, for example, yeah, I attacked a lot of the, r the, the, the conservatism in The Power of Nightmares, both in the neoconservatives but within the Islamist movement. But in mm -hmm. the century of the self that you mentioned, you could argue, is a perfect neoconservative tract. Because what, it what, it, what I argued was this emphasis on individualism might be corroding social cohesion and social bonds that used to make society a much more integrated and powerful force. Well, you know, that could be a right-wing argument. Yeah. I just think that, I think if one is truthful these days about one's responses, there is no fixed politics. And I think that's one of the things we've got to realize. And you're going to invent something out of that unfixedness. And the problem for things like, say, the Occupy movement, it was a desperate attempt to retreat back to a, an old leftist position, yeah. which then really screwed them. Let's take a call real quick. Hey, Dan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Dan. Dan has a question for Adam Curtis here. Go right ahead. It's been a great interview, and I'm a big fan of Adam's films. Um, I guess I'm curious how he might describe his use of imagery in his films. Like, what? Do they, how do they exist um, without the images? Um, could we describe them as manipulative? Is that fair? Um, I think I'm actually much more open. I, I wouldn't use the word manipulative. I would argue that mm. I emotionally push you in different ways and provoke you in different ways with my images. But what I would also say is that you notice that I do it. I would think, but I would say that many of my colleagues do exactly the same thing, but they pretend they don't. I mean, my films are provocative essays. That's really all they are. And in that sense, yes, I'm trying to use imagery to push you, to provoke you, to emotionally make you think and feel things. Of course I am. But that's actually what every news item does every night of the week on the BBC and I'm sure on American networks. What you have is a team of three people go out, film some images, choose them, select them, put them together to create really 
I wouldn't again use the word manipulation, an emotional message to you about the news of that day. But what they pretend to you is that it's true. I, my things are arguments, provocative arguments about the world. All the fragments you have, pictures, music, my, my facts in the commentary, are real, but they're a construction. They're a construction on reality. And I think it's very important, I mean, it's very good that you, you ask me that, because I try and make that clear. I wish my colleagues would do the same. <laughs> well, hey, Dan, that's, that's great. You want a chance to win the tickets here? All you have to do is uh, tell me the name of the clip, name of the film that the clip I played from earlier was. What, which film was that? I think that was Century of the Yay! All right, you Yay. win. I, all right, you, so you hold on, and Andrea will we'll get your information from you. Man, Adam, the hour just flew by. I uh, I wasn't expecting it would go that fast. We didn't. There's so many more things we could have talked about, but I, I can't thank you enough for coming down to the station. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, so Adam Curtis versus uh, Massive Attack will be uh, running at the Armory. Only eight shows. Six shows. Up, oh, I already messed that up. Only six, so uh, most are sold out. So you better get them. Yeah, get your get your tickets soon. And uh, uh, thanks again for coming on down, Adam. Thank you. Listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, the Sonic Truth, the Pacific Northwest Story, with special guest DJ. Eddie J. Yes, we're going over a whole bunch of tunes from the Pacific Northwest history with Vancouver record collector Eddie J. And in upcoming weeks, going to have an interview with the Sonics. Hence, the Sonic Truth, the Pacific Northwest story on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Who 
are you? What is Crazy Ed? Crazy Ed, what are we doing with the Sonic Truth, the Pacific Northwest story? Well, we're going to play um, artists that were basically based in Seattle and Tacoma. Actually, I was talking to a, a Tacoma, Tacoma fellow, a, a famous record seller, uh, Don Kirsch. And Don Kirsch uh, pulled me aside one day and said, you know what, Ed? All those bands that they say came from Seattle actually came from Tacoma. And we're going to be playing a lot of those bands today in an Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. What are we kicking off right now with the sonic truth, the Pacific Northwest story? We're going way back to early 1950 with a, a fellow that uh, made a career starting in the mid-30s um, in Seattle. Um, I always thought his name was Harry Stewart. I've never heard of a, an artist uh, who had one name as uh, being an artist, in this case Yogi Jorgensen, and then had a, a, a different name as uh, his writing name, and and yet was a third name. But you just gave me a book uh, that uh, just came out, and what, what did you say that his real name was, Yorgi Jorgensen? I'm not sure. Oh, you quoted it to me last night. Peter Blecker wrote a great <laughs> book all about it. Yes, he's the number one expert on uh, the Pacific Northwest. And, of course, he's a Seattle area record collector, so that that's uh, his hometown. Anyway, this one came out in early 1950, and it's called Real Gone Galoot by Yogi Jorgensen. On an Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, The Sonic Truth, The Pacific Northwest Story, with guest DJ... Eddie J! I flunked in music in high school They said I had no talent and how But them high school teachers was crazy Just listen to me now Rooty toot toot, hoo-ah, rooty toot toot I just got my diploma from the Yaz Institute I've learned to sing words like a poo-poo-ba-doop It says on my diploma I'm a real gone galoot a rooty toot toot, hoo-ah, rooty toot toot The bobby soxers love me at the Yaz Institute They holler and whoop whenever my suit suit And when I croon they tell me I'm a real gone galoot I'm gone, yeah I have Every event And when I send those babes Damn little cuties Go over they been sent A rooty toot toot Hoo-ha, rooty toot toot I learned this modern music At the Yaz Institute Hey boo, bariba skiddy de skadoot The teachers say My goodness, he's a real gone galoot I surprised my teacher not long ago Singing hold that tiger real soft and slow Hold that tiger ain't no love song The teacher sighed It is to a tiger I quickly replied Oh, they think I'm a card at the Yaz Institute On the campus I'm referred to as a real gone galoot I'm gone Yive is my specialty but when 